You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Michael Seth Starr. He's covered television as a reporter and columnist at the New York Post since 1995. He has written several books, including a filmography of Peter Sellers, and biographies of Art Carney, Joey Bishop, Bobby Darren, Raymond Burr, absolutely sinister in the rear window, <laughs> Red Fox, probably in the top five of the funniest people who ever lived, Ringo Starr, William Shatner, and now Don Rickles. His new book is called Don Rickles, The Merchant of Venom. Thank you so much. Michael, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Robert. It's, uh, this is great. Thanks for having me on. When I pick up the Red Fox book or the Ringo Starr book, can we, if you do have fun today, can we have you back on? Of course. Always happy to talk about it. <laughs> all those guys. <laughs> well, you, we were talking for a few minutes before we started the recording, how you and I basically grew up in the same time period. I was born in 67 and Don Rickles was such a huge part of the, of the public television and sort of popular culture landscape what were your first memories of him and did he make you laugh because i know he made your parents laugh yeah <laughs> yes my parents saw don in in las vegas in the 60s actually um probably at the sahara hotel uh my my first memories of don are from the dean martin celebrity roasts when he would come on and do his thing he was always the last one to perform because you know, let's face it, nobody could top Don Rickles. And he was actually the only performer on those roasts who whose lines were not written for him. Everybody else had writers and, you know, mm-hmm. because they'd have all different sorts of entertainers on astronauts. and Yeah. Neil Armstrong, Wilt yeah, Chamberlain. Yeah. People you wouldn't expect. So they all have. But but nobody wrote for Don. He, he came up with his own stuff. And he, you know, and he was 
part of his part of his uh his brilliance was his off the cuff uh sort of like machine gun style riffing on on different people which was perfect for the roasts and then of course so watching him on on the tonight show with Johnny Carson those were just classics you mentioned before Robert when we were talking about uh watching those clips on YouTube there are a lot of those and more about Don and people can check out just to see how quick on his feet he was and how much fun he was particularly on a talk show well that was actually the one of the first questions I wanted to, to ask you because the one thing that I see in, in all of his clips, or at least 99% of them, is that Don Rickles could take it. I mean, he got made fun of a lot. Carson really took it to him on more than one, one occasion. And Rickles loved, reveled in it. He enjoyed the give and take. So it wasn't like he just dished it out and couldn't take it. It was both. He's like, I insult. Now give me your best shot, Johnny. Right, right. And, and you know, one, one of the particular uh manifestations of people making fun of Don was his his lack of sitcom success. He tried and tried again, never really had a very successful sitcom. That was always the basis of, you know, of, you know, Rickles, you can't, you, you know, you can't even get, get it, launch a successful sitcom, whatever, you know, that, that kind of thing. But yes, he did, he did, he did give as good as he took or took as good as he gave in, in, in this case. And I think that's why um, he was such a good talk show host he was willing to be made fun of and obviously willing to make fun of the host and the people sitting on the couch next to him, whether it was Ed McMahon or Michael Landon or <laughs> Pat Boone or whoever happened to Angie Dickinson, whoever happened to be there was fair game. And they, they knew that, of course. And that was Don's bread and butter. It was funny. I remember and it's on YouTube, one particular clip. He's on The Tonight Show with Johnny. It looks like it's early 80s, maybe late 70s, early 80s. You can only tell, really, you can only tell by the clothes and yes. the upholstery uh, <laughs> what year it was. But I think Don says something to Johnny, like, how, how, you, how long are you going to hang on, right? You're just going to do this show to your die. And Carson, without missing a beat, looks at him and says, well, I like to do one show, you know, for my whole life, as opposed to you, who just keeps trying more and more. He's trying yeah. to do three or four, like right <laughs> to your point, like stuck him right where right. it counted. And Riggles right. laughed pretty hard. Right. And, so he and could I take it. He could take it. And and to me, some of those best Tonight Show moments are when 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 Don either was on the, already on the show or he he um, occasionally just walked in unannounced. He had that, that. He was allowed to do that. Bob Hope was allowed to do the same thing. There were certain people who could just, you know, walk on the Tonight Show. And when Frank Sinatra was there, that was always those were always great shows because Don would just, you know, it was always along the same lines, but he was oh, he would always rip on him. And and Sinatra took it and he took it in good humor, which was not easy thing to do with Frank Sinatra. He I think we're gonna we're gonna get to yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Was it Mongo Mongananzo? Mongo <laughs> Got hurt. I called him in Jersey City, boom, all over the highway. Yeah. yeah that, that was he he was oh he would always tone in on that with Sinatra and uh and that's and, and we can talk about that which is pretty much how Don really got his start exactly uh, it comes through in your book we're talking with Michael Seth Starr about his book Don Rickles the Merchant of Venom Mr. Starr has made frequent appearances on television including the Today Show Access Hollywood Good Morning America Larry King Live Extra Inside Edition Entertainment Tonight and Indiana University's own Tavis Smiley. 
Way to go, Tavis. Uh, let's talk a little bit. The thing that came out when I read your book, it was all kind of like, okay, I've heard this, I've heard this. But then when I got to the point, and I don't want to skip over his early life, that he attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and had some very famous classmates, either in his class or a year or two before or after. Uh, why, why does Don Rickles not get that sort of reaction? In other words, the reaction I got when I read that, because he doesn't come across as an actor. And what, what drove him to want to do to be in show business for a career? Right. Well, I, I don't think he gets that reaction because people, first of all, probably don't know that part of him. But he was he he is so unforgettable as his as the, the merchant of venom and Mr. Warmth and his post his, poster boy for Planned Parenthood. Yeah. <laughs> according to Carson. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was he was he's so indelible as a, as an insult comic, a comic that. That part of his career, and let's face it, I mean, he was not a very successful dramatic actor. He did later in his, he did act, he, he did get notices for in in some dramatic movies, including The Rat Race with Debbie Reynolds and Tony Curtis. And later on in his career, Casino, he was in um, Run Silent, Run Deep with Clark Gable. But he's just so over the top with his onstage career that Yes, people don't realize, I think many people don't realize that he really did want to be a dramatic actor. He did not start out to be a comedian at all, a, a stand-up comedian of any stripe, let alone an insult comic. He really wanted to be a dramatic actor. And as you mentioned, Robert, he did. He, he uh, after high school, he enlisted in the Navy. Um, he was there for two and a half years um, during World War II. And when he was discharged, he he attended, uh, he applied for membership in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is located in Manhattan in New York City. And he was accepted. It's a two-year program. He he wanted to be a dramatic actor, even though he was always, he it's the typical, he was a funny kid. He made all the guys, when he when he was in the Navy, he made the guys on the ship laugh. He imitated a lot of them. He insulted a lot of them. But that really wasn't where he wanted to go with his career. I think he considered himself really a, uh, more in line with a serious actor as opposed to a comedian. And he put in two years and he, he he graduated, as you mentioned. Grace Kelly was a classmate a year behind him, if memory serves, and Conrad Bain, who later went on yeah. to star in Maude in Different Strokes. Um, Jason Robards Jr., yeah. distinguished actor, All the President's Men. Um, Don Murray, who starred in Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe. And there were several others, but, you know, Don, excuse me, when he graduated, really tried at that time in the late 40s, Broadway in New York City was the main source of entertainment, Broadway and radio. Right. TV was still in his infancy. You know, Milton Burrow was just getting started, 1948, thereabouts getting started. So really the main sources of entertainment were radio and uh, drama. Uh, there was no television or movies, but you're in New York City, unless you're going to fly out to L.A. and try that. So Don tried to get tried to break into legitimate theater uh, in in New York City. He auditioned for many shows, usually dramas, sometimes musicals. But he he didn't have what it took. I mean, he he didn't he might have gotten called back once or twice, but he never really made that final cut and, and didn't was not hired. So I think he realized early on that he was going to have to shift his 
his focus as far as entertainment was concerned. And he didn't, he didn't quite get away from the drama. He started to perform in clubs, but it was more, he was more of sort of a performance artist. He would do these strange acts. Like he had one, one of his performances was called the man with the glass head. <laughs> he borrowed from a Peter Laurie character where I've heard of that before. You'd have, you'd have to imagine Don, he would be a character on stage with a glass bowl over his head and you'd have, and he would act out the thoughts that he was thinking that's so the audience could see. And it was just weird. Did not go over well. You know, what a surprise. Uh, it was that he was not a big success with that. So he was at a club in um in Washington, DC, a strip club, because that's what he was he was trying to pay his dues. And he was he he would he would basically work for whoever hired him. And, and his family wasn't wealthy. I mean, they weren't destitute, but his family wasn't wealthy to say they weren't wealthy. Like, his, his mother was very ambitious for Don Etta, and she was a big influence in his career. And she would actually travel with him sometimes. But um, so she was always pushing him. And, and he was at a, a strip club uh, down by the docks in Washington, D.C., by the Navy Yard. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And he started to get heckled in his act. And he just threw caution to the wind and started heckling back. He figured, you know, what do I have to lose? And he found that he had a talent for doing that. And he had a talent for doing it without alienating his audience. I mean, that's not to say he would get into trouble occasionally by picking on the wrong person or somebody who didn't have a great sense of humor about it. But he discovered this talent and he started, that's how he started his, his quote unquote, his insult act. And he worked more and more of it into the act until he was just solely being booked to come on stage and, and make fun of people in the audience. You know, he wasn't a joke teller. Um, not, you know, it wasn't a Henny Youngman, take my wife, please. Or, you know, my wife is, you know, he would work one liners into the act, especially about his wife. And, but he, and he started to, to, to just pick on people. And he, it didn't matter if they were tall, short, uh, ethnicity was never a concern with Donnie, <laughs> everybody, Hispanic people, uh, black people, Jewish people, um, <clears throat> Asians. It didn't matter to him, but he was funny. And and people, for whatever psychological reason, enjoyed being made fun of by this guy on stage. And, and it was started to pay off for him. He started to get booked into bigger and bigger clubs as word spread. And um, the rest, as they say, it's not so much immediate history, but within several years, he was hitting the big time. Who were some of his contemporaries? You write about them in your book. Some got along with Don. Some did not find him funny, but I would say most of them did. But for those of us who are about the same age, reel off some of these names so we can kind of smile to ourselves. Well, I would say um, <clears throat> Joey Bishop, um, Buddy Hackett. Um, there was a comedian, another insult comedian named Jack Leonard, who was called Fat Jack Leonard because he was fat. <laughs> That's what they did back then. <laughs> Um, and I think Jack Leonard was probably considered Don's biggest rival in the insult comedy world. Um, and 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 Jack Leonard was not happy when Don started to really hit it big. And he would call him, you know, my student. And he would claim that Don was ripping part of his act off. I don't think Don was. And I don't think Don thought he was either. Mm -hmm. Their acts, while they yeah, were both, Fat Jack was a little more intellectual in his, in his put downs. Um, and he was a little older than Don, so he'd been around a little longer, but, um, 
Yeah, you know, you had I mentioned Buddy Hackett, uh, um, Alan King, Shecky Alan Green, King, Shecky Green, Milton Berle, who was really who was Don's idol, um, and and later on Don went into business with Buddy Hackett and opening up a uh, a hotel in in uh, Lake Tahoe, I believe it didn't do well, but um, you know, listen, comics are very. If there's anything you can say about comics, is they're very competitive with each other. And I think Don was able to escape a lot of that because he wasn't a joke teller and he was never really accused of ripping off anybody's jokes. That's a big thing with comics. Right. I, you know, he, he he ripped off my joke. She's doing my act, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Don was it was it Jack Benny? Who was the one who was always accused of stealing jokes? Like the well, running joke was that he did nothing but steal jokes. Milton Berle. He was Milton called, Berle. Yeah, he was called the thief of bad gags. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great when uh, a Dane Martin roast of Bob Hope. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. I'm sure you have, obviously. But Rickles makes a joke about all the old people on the dais to roast Bob Hope and says something to effect Milton Burl's here. So-and-so's here. It's great being at the home and Bur- Milton Burl gets up and goes to, you know, challenge Don. And then they, he goes to sit down and so on and so forth. The interplay is just so funny. I didn't know that Burl was his hero until I read your book. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think Don really, he had a lot of respect for Milton Burl, a lot of respect the way he came up in the business. And when Don was, Starting out, as I mentioned before, in the late 40s, uh, Burl had Texaco Star Theater came on in 48. And he was like the biggest celebrity in the country at that time in, in this new uh, medium of television. And and Don was just in awe of, of, of Milton Burl. And he would hang out at a drugstore um, that was located right near Burl's offices so he could get a glimpse of the man walking in, you know, in, in <laughs> midtown Manhattan, maybe say hello to him. But yeah, and 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 they had a lifelong friendship and and respect for each other. Um, Burl was very gracious with Don once um, Don hit it big, um, as was Frank Sinatra. And so I want to get to Frank next because that's obviously uh, Rickles's big break. But some of Rickles's contemporaries, they just didn't get along for whatever reason, or or they didn't appreciate or like. Or think that Don's humor was art the way, you know, a joke teller per se would would say, well, I'm an artist. I'm I'm memorizing these and come up with these great lines and great jokes. Can you talk about a little bit uh, for a minute the friction between Don and some of his fellow comedians in like the 50s, early 60s? Well, it's not the, the, the comedy world is not it's not a collegial world. There's not you know, like it's there's intense rivalry, jealousy, um, you know, one comic makes it big and the other guy's like, you're, you know, he's, he's I'm funnier he's, than he is. Why is he making he stole my act? He's using my he's using my lines. Um, he got lucky, you know, all, all that. Kind of, it's it's like it is in any walk of life. Right. Jealousy. Sometimes success can bring jealousy on 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 your competitors part. And I think that's especially true in the world of comedy. And in the in the 50s, when TV was starting to become the medium overtaking radio and and uh, movie executives were petrified of television because they thought nobody would go to pay to see movies anymore. They'd get it for free on small screen. It turned out not to be true, but it did, I think, put for a while, put a, a bite into Hollywood box office. But um, 
And comics would, you know, they would they would be angry that why did so and so get a why did Fat Jack Leonard get a shot on on Ed Sullivan? You know, I I I I auditioned. You know, I I'm just as good as he is. And TV was such a was such a way to make somebody's name that if you got a shot on Sullivan or Perry Como show, Red Skelton, any of those big shows, your career was at least for the immediate future was was made. Because then you get booked into clubs, as seen on the Ed Sullivan show, as seen on Perry <laughs> yeah. Como, you know, and and it was a big help. Don, unfortunately, couldn't couldn't overcome that hurdle in the fifth in the mid fifties. Um, couldn't get on Sullivan, and 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 he couldn't get on any of the big shows um, until the end of the decade when he really started to make his mark. Who did Don Rickles? Not just in this period, time period, obviously, but throughout his life who did don rickles think was funny i can i can picture him laughing up and i'm could be 100 wrong but i can picture him laughing uproariously at some of the things rodney dangerfield would say <laughs> yeah well you know don don as we mentioned milton burrow don really never spoke that much about be notwithstanding burrow about who he thought was you know was was funny he he liked a lot of the up and coming guys in the in the um, in the 80s and 70s and 80s like jay leno he was a big fan of leno's um and, and jerry seinfeld um but in the 60s it's a good question and i don't know i don't know if i can really answer that he 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 was liked he was pretty much liked by everybody in the business but he never really talked that much about who he thought was very funny. And maybe that was a good thing um, sort of to remain neutral, you know, and just laugh at everybody's jokes. If you watch him on those roasts with Dean Martin Rose or even on the tonight show, he's cracking up at everything and probably didn't think all it was, everything was that funny, but he was being diplomatic about it. How fortunate was Rickles to come up or get his breakthrough and what a lot of people consider the golden age of television that 50s 60s maybe even early 70s where as you said television really took over obviously rickles had a ton of success at the casinos and in theater those sorts of things live performances but most people i know even i do when i look back at some of the clips from 50 60 years ago just think that's a that's a marvelous time in american popular culture Yes, it was. And it's a good point, uh, Robert. TV was at its peak then. And, you know, they call it peak TV now, but you know what I mean? It was it was considered the golden age, especially in the 50s. Um, and even when when Don in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, Johnny Carson started, well, Jack Parr was already big. Uh, Don was on the Parr show. And then, of course, when, when Johnny took over uh, from Jack Parr, he just took it up three notches. And he was he was the king of late night to get a shot on Carson was could, you could make your career or break your career if you were no good. Don Carson loved Don from the get-go from the first time he was on. And I think it was 1964, if memory serves, 63, 64, 65. Okay. <laughs> Robert's correcting me. 65. And from that point on, he had him on all the time. And then of course you had Joey Bishop had a short-lived talk show on ABC for a while. Um, excuse me. Yeah. They had Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shore came along, Dick Cavett. Uh, later on, Bob Costas had his his interview show later. They all loved having Don on. And he would come on and he was such a great guest because he would just keep everybody in stitches. 
um, and and just be so quick on his feet or on his tush because he was sitting down most of the time. But um, you know, and and just making and 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 the audience loved it. Believe me, I cover television. If if he was on these shows and it wasn't resonating, he would not be back on. And he so never he, plugged anything. I don't remember seeing anything where he's there to maybe plug a movie or a product or something. You know, a lot of those folk went on the tonight show because they had something going on that they yeah. wanted to get to a broader audience. I don't ever remember him saying, Hey, let me hawk this toothpaste or, Hey, I'm going to be in this movie. He just walked on the stage or walked on the set and for 10 to 15 minutes went at it and then left. Yeah. That didn't happen very often. When, when Don's first attempt at a, like we can call it a sitcom. They thought it was some kind of weird hybrid game show. It was called the Don Rickle show. In 1968, it was on um, ABC. Johnny Carson had Don on to talk about the show because Johnny's brother, Dick Carson, was Don's producer. So sort of Johnny was doing his brother a, a solid, even though it was on a different network. So they they came out to talk about the show. Didn't help <laughs> because the show <laughs> bombed and it wasn't on very long. It was one of Don's, uh, one of the th- several of the shows that just uh, came and went very quickly. TV was no doubt the most important part of Don Rickles' career. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, our podcast with Michael Seth Starr. He's written several biographies. Uh, this case, we're talking about his latest one, Don Rickles, The Merchant of Venom. Let's chat for a few minutes, and then I want, do want to get to uh, Mr. Sinatra. Uh, why do you think, kind of came through in your book a little bit, where Don was so extemporaneous that that a script with lines that he had to memorize that just seemed to be the complete opposite of who he was as a performer. Did that hurt his chances for success in a television show, a scripted show? Absolutely. It was, it was almost like sucking the life out of him because you, you couldn't, Don had to be sort of seen and, and, and to, to, to be off the cuff as off the cuff as he could be. I mean, it was always, it was always a, a variation on the same theme, but it was always different. And when you're putting somebody into a, literally into a, a box for 22 <laughs> minutes for, for a sitcom, right? And he's, you know, he's the, he's the dad with the, with the young kid and the beautiful wife, and he's coming home from work and he's in a bad mood or he's the work, you know, that wasn't Don Rickles and it wasn't his shtick and it wasn't, it didn't quite fit him. And yet he kept on doing it. He really wanted that sitcom. And we mentioned the Don Rickles show in 1968. The second sitcom attempt was called the Don Rickles show. This time it was on CBS um, where he uh, he was married with a, a, a young daughter played by Aaron Moran, who later went on to Happy Days, stardom. Um, didn't work because he was a, you know, he was the put upon husband coming home, dealing with the you know, <laughs> It was typical sitcom fare for the for the early 1970s. The one that really did work to Don's benefit more than the others was CPO Sharky. And that lasted a couple of years, right? It did, yes. It lasted two seasons in the mid-70s on NBC, 75 and 76, pretty sure. Um, and the reason that worked, I think, was because they were writing to Don's strengths. Don was playing a Navy guy, right? Don was in the Navy for two and a half years. He he knew that world. He spoke that lingo. He was playing a chief petty officer named Otto Sharkey. He knew guys like this when in, in during World War II. He served with them. So that was and, and he was making fun of all the guys in his unit. It was almost like 
it's it's it would be going too far to say that it was almost like he was performing live and on stage, but that's as close as you were going to get to seeing Don performing on stage live was him making fun of all his um, cohorts. <laughs> Although it was scripted, a lot of it was not, um, and, and that was the beauty of Don. But that really that really was the closest that television the sitcom genre could get to the real, to the persona of Don Rickles to make it work in that format. And if anybody who's listening has been in the military, you know that all we do is make fun of each other all the time. Your dad <laughs> died. Hi, everyone starts laughing. It's unbelievable. If you're thin skinned and you're in the military, you got to find another avocation because that that's not going to cut it. Let's talk about Frank Sinatra, please. Um, it, it seems like a, an odd bromance, if I may use that term, um, Sinatra was famously proud and prickly and Rickles just shattered all through that remarkably reading. I'd heard about it before, obviously, but reading it in more detail in your book, I, I did have to admit, as I turned the page going, why didn't Sinatra just have this guy killed? Like, what was it about Rickles that made Rickles that made Sinatra enjoy it? Because I can only picture myself or maybe you at the Coconut Grove yelling insults at Sinatra and having us be taken to the alley. I mean, so to speak. Right. right what right. was it about Rickles that that Sinatra found so ballsy and funny? I think the you have to trace the origin of their relationship. I mentioned Don's mother before, Etta Rickles, who was a big influence in Don's career. Don's father passed away in the early 50s um, when he was in his early 50s. I So so Don and his mother were very, they were always close, but they grew closer when his Don's father passed away. And everyone loved her. Everyone loved her. She Everybody, cooked for people. She, she cooked did. for all these celebrities. Soup, chopped liver. She would come back. There's a story in the book Ernie Borgnine tells where she he was doing the odd couple with Don in the sick uh, uh, in the in the 60s or early 70s, and she came back. He wasn't feeling well. She bought him soup and you know her famous <laughs> chopped liver. They all loved her. So she was like she was like the stage manager, right? But she was also friends in Miami Beach when she was living there with Frank's mother, Dolly Sinatra. So I think Frank put a lot of stock in that. And now she was friends with Dolly Sinatra. At this point, Don did not know Frank Sinatra. They, they did not travel in the same circles. <laughs> However, Don was performing at a, a smaller club in Miami Beach called Murray Franklin's. It was it was. It was well known enough. It wasn't like you mentioned. It wasn't like the Copacabana in New York, or, or uh, you know, the Twenty One Club, or. Anything. But it was well. It was it was well known. It was a small club, Miami Beach, and Don was performing there, doing his insult act. And Etta Rickles, who knew Dolly Sinatra, really sort of, she asked for a favor. You know, can you please get Frank to go see my? She called him my Sonny Boy. Go see my Sonny Boy. He's really funny. Frank will enjoy it. Now, to Dolly's credit, she followed up and and Don was working there one night in 1959 at Murray Franklin's. He was in the he was doing his act. He didn't know that Frank was going to be there. Sinatra walks in. The veritable, you know, the, the the hush falls over the crowd. It's like, oh my God, Frank Sinatra's here. The chairman of the happen? board. Yeah, yeah. What's gonna happen? Oh, is somebody gonna Don without missing a beat looks over and he goes, Go ahead, Frank, make yourself at home, hit somebody. I saw the canon in your last movie. The canon was a better actor than you are. You know, all these insults and his looks and his acting ability. 
you know, you, you know, I, I, I saw, you know, I love your voice too bad. It's in Perry Como's body, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and he started in a Sinatra and everybody, everybody's, you know, the, the crowd's like holds his breath. Sinatra bursts out laughing. So everybody else is like, okay, great. Shank's laughing. We'll laugh. Everything is good. Um, and from then on, he just, Sinatra really enjoyed being in Don's company. He made Don an honorary member of the Rat Pack about a year later when the, when um, they were filming Ocean's Eleven uh, at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas. Frank, uh, uh, Peter Lawford, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop. Uh, Martin. Dean Martin. And, and, and Frank Sinatra was famous. Everybody had a nickname. Um, so he had when the Rat Pack would hang out in their steam room at the Sands, they would wear bathrobes emblazoned with their nickname. Frank had one uh, made for Don. It's a bullet head across it. Cause that's what he, he called Don Bullethead. He was losing his hair. That was Sinatra's, you know, sense of humor, but Don loved it. And he loved being around these guys. And let's face it. It gave him a cachet in show business. If you were hanging around with the Rat Pack, you must be cool, right? If you can make fun of Frank Sinatra, you must be cool. If Frank can laugh at you, it's okay for us to laugh at you, even if you're making fun of Sinatra. So that really, really was a huge, huge boon to Don's career. And it seems to be for us here in 2023, especially anyone who's listening, who's maybe, you know, 15 to 20, 25 years younger than than I am, I'm 55, is what a monstrous star Sinatra was from what the thirties all the way for however many decades that, that his, he was pretty much always, he had some rough periods, obviously, but very close to the top of the people who were thought of as superstars in American entertainment. Yes. And, and, and as you mentioned, uh, uh, Robert, he, he managed to keep that stardom in the firmament from, you know, he had, he had some low points and then in, starting in the early fifties with from here to eternity, he won the Oscar, the great comeback. And he was, you know, you said, Frank, people didn't ask Frank who they knew who you were talking about. <laughs> like Marilyn or, you know, Elvis for that, for that 20 year period. Um, but Sinatra was just, yeah, it's hard. It's, I think it really is hard for people of a certain age, younger people to understand how big of a star he was. Uh, on on par with you know if you're talking about music the Beatles for instance yeah I was gonna say Paul McCartney would be well, the yeah. only person I could think of yeah or, or just just the Beatles as a whole in 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 the scheme of rock music you know they're always at the top you know maybe the role there are people like you know tiny bit below them but yeah Frank Frank was he was a huge huge star Michael Jackson would be another right. one at his peak or Prince. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is biographer Michael Seth Starr. We we're discussing his latest book, Don Rickles, The Merchant of Venom. Previous biographies include Red Fox, Ringo Starr, Joey Bishop, William Shatner. I hope there were 20 chapters about him and George Takei. Uh, 
as opposed to anything else. Uh, you've been very gracious so far. We're about halfway through. One of the things that I find interesting about Don's movie career, you know, he starts off kind of with, I mean, Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster. I mean, there's two Oscar winners right there. But one of the great what ifs of of Don's career, and I've read this or watched it in several places, he was almost cast in the role of Al Chervik, played by Rodney Dangerfield in Caddyshack. I've read and I've seen Harold Ramis, the director, say we were really thinking Rickles, but then, you know, Dangerfield was so popular in the late 70s, early 80s because of The Tonight Show. Did did Don ever talk about getting that role or was it even ever offered it to offered to him? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to believe Harold Ramis. I mean, he's he's since passed away. But if, you know, if he said that they that they were considering Don Rickles and they were considering Don Rickles, I and it, he would have been, I think. Uh, custom made for that role. Oh. And and he had the, the thing. And actually, my next the, the next book, the book I'm working on now is a biography of Rodney Dangerfield. So I will talk, talk about please, that, that. Please, book. please come back on. <laughs> he He's my all time, yeah. absolute all time favorite. Just simply hysterical. But unlike unlike Don knew the ins and outs of acting and he and he had acted throughout the 60s. They might have been smaller roles, but he was in many, many movies. Um, but some of them beach blanket bingo and had to stuff a wild, all these weird, you know, Frankie Avalon and Ed Funicello stuff. But Don knew his way around a movie set. And, and from what I've read, Rodney Dangerfield, although he was great in the role, didn't really, he didn't really know how to act for the cameras, whereas Don did. So it would have been interesting to see Rodney, of course, was, you know, that's, that's his, that's his role when it comes to movies. Oh, God. How, how did he not win the Oscar? But your point, your point's taken, Michael, because it, if you watch the documentaries at Caddyshack, you'll see, and we, we'll move on, but you'll see the other actors telling stories about how Rodney was like, no one's laughing, I'm bombing, I'm terrible, I'm not doing anything. And you had, whether it was Cindy Morgan or or, or Chevy Chase going, no, they can't laugh. Like you're stealing the movie, right. but they can't right. laugh. It ruins the soundtrack. Yeah. Toy Story. He is Mr. Potato Head. How did he get that role and and what did that mean to him for have his voice be listened to by a complete, I mean, basically a 21st century generation of people? Right. John Lasseter, who who uh, created Toy Story, was a big fan of Don's. And when he when he was thinking of who would play Mr. Potato Head, Don Rickles came to him, you know, and here you had sort of a. A movie for kids, obviously. And some for adults, there were some lines that would go over kids' heads, but Don was perfect for that because he was, he could be like sort of the grouchy, sarcastic Mr. Potato Head, but in a way that was um, acceptable to children, you know, and, and, and funny and grumpy and, and, you know, and he got off some great lines and he, John, Don did not want to do that movie. He was like, you know, what do I want to do a kid's movie for, you know, with this weird animation, like, you know, what, what am I going to do? So John Lasseter went to uh, Don had a, a, a place in Malibu. He went to meet with him, and he John uh, uh, Don liked John Lasseter. He talked John talked him into it. They paid Don a boatload of money. And the interesting thing is, you know, so he did Toy Story, the original movie, and it was sort of a confluence of perfect events because Casino opened in in 1995, and then Toy Story opened like two weeks later. So you had these two big movies opening and saying both that included Don Rickles. 
And that really gave his career, I wouldn't say his career was flagging at that point. He was sort of, he was there and treading water, but this really, again, put him back in the back in the spotlight and really, um, I think, opened it up to a new generation of fans, including the talk show hosts I mentioned before, Jay Leno and, and, and Letterman, um, Conan O'Brien would all have done on the show. Really, some do in part, especially for the younger talk show hosts, the Toy Story. Let's let's go back to Johnny Carson for a while. Speaking of contemporaries not understanding how incredibly prestigious and powerful a certain person was. I mean, Johnny Carson was probably, without a doubt, the most famous person on television for decades. And there's a great friendship between Rickles and Carson where they really go after each other. It's really funny that Carson, uh, who's known to have a really bad temper, he just allowed Rickles to destroy him on his own TV show, which just kind of shows you that's the unselfishness of Johnny Carson. But there was one particular incident I want to talk about, and that is ask you about, excuse me. And that is when when Rickles walked on during Johnny Carson's Japanese massage and bath and started to run his mouth. And I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, I think he ended up, uh, uh, Johnny threw him into the tub and <laughs> they had like <laughs> nature girls there. And yeah, they, they were wearing bathing suits. Don walked on, as you mentioned, started giving them lip and Carson pushed them in. And they would, that, that was one of the great moments of, of and they, they used to show that all the time, actually, when they were shooting that, that moment with Don was great. And there was also another memorable moment, which people of a certain age might remember when. Um, Here we Don go. Had, yeah. <laughs> go uh, ahead. Don had been on The Tonight Show. Uh, but, but Don's best friend in the world, Bob Newhart, was hosting, guest hosting for Johnny. Johnny was on vacation, one of his 84 weeks of vacation here. Uh, <clears throat> and so Don was on with guest host Bob Newhart. Don was telling a story, making a point, a joke. And he stamped Johnny's cigarette lighter down on the desk like he was stamping a passport. And it broke. And Newhart was like, oh, boy, you know, you're going to be in trouble when Johnny gets back. And, Don, you know, so they went on to the next thing. Well, little little did Don know that, you know, Carson heard about this and they had pre-planned this whole thing where Johnny would come on The Tonight Show the next night, do his monologue, sit down at the desk. And he'd pick up the cigarette holder and go, you know, what happened? Who broke my cigarette holder? You know, and then. Somebody would say, yeah, it was, it was Severn, Doc Severance and yeah. rats him out. It was Rickles, you know, but they had set this up. Don did not know about all this. Don, meanwhile, was taping CPO Sharky, which was right across the hall from the from a Carson studio in Burbank and NBC. They were literally like 20 feet away, soundproof studios. So Johnny goes, Rickles. So he, he takes a microphone, gets up from the desk. Cameras follow him as he walks out from the desk into the hallway across the hallway opens the door into where Don, Don's in the middle of taping a scene for <laughs> Harrison page for CPO Sharky. You know, Johnny bursts the door open. He goes, Rickles, what'd you do to my cigarette? <laughs> and I think for one of the only times Don was like speechless. He was. And then he started to laugh, you know, he's like, Oh, you know, but he didn't know what to say because he had no idea. Everybody else, the guys in CPO Sharky knew this was going to happen. Carson of course knew. Don didn't. And it was it was a very it was one of those moments of of late night television. That's just um, it's indelible. 
it's sweet revenge, but then Rickles takes it. Like he just is like, Oh, I'm going to get it. And and he laughs the whole way. And yeah. And uh, I want to ask you about a third. You took my second one. Let me ask you about a third <laughs> tonight show moment involving Don Rickles, where Don Rickles is the host. And that's the very famous October 1975 walk on the tonight show set unannounced of Bob Hope, Bing Crosby and John Wayne. Yeah. It's incredibly beautiful to watch on YouTube. I, I don't remember it happening at the time, but you talk about three of the biggest stars ever just walked on the stage and Rickles just, ha- they didn't know Rickles was hosting, at least according to Bing Crosby. Uh, did, did, yeah. and, go ahead. I was going to ask you, do Rickles ever talk about that? Cause the look on his face is like, he's like a little kid. And then he starts insulting people. And then he gets insulted right back by Bing Crosby, who says, yeah. I was there to plug a buck book and he goes, I was hoping Mr. Carson, but I'll have to take what I can get. And the crowd all laughs at Rickles and everything. Did he ever talk about that incident or not incident, but occasion? Don didn't really talk much about that um, at length. He mentioned it occasionally as one of his greatest highlights of, of, of his career, but you're right. And, and what an homage to Don that these guys, I mean, they said they didn't know he was hosting. They probably did. Mm -hmm. Um, But that they would come on, even if Johnny wasn't there, um, and probably weren't guaranteed the massive. Well, Johnny had a massive audience every night. I mean, and it it might have fallen a little bit when he had he had many guests hosts on among them. And we mentioned Bob Newhart, um, Doc Severinsen would sit in occasionally. But yeah, I mean, what an homage to Don that these three giants would would just you know and take his ribbing and give it back and and just another another classic late night moment. You know, and there were there were so many of them with Don. That's definitely one of them. Let me ask you to append to this. Why do you think these these major league celebrities, and we're talking Oscar winners, Grammy winners, Emmys, Tonys, I mean, Hall of Fame entertainers in, let's just say, American cultural history, they didn't just enjoy laughing at Don's jokes when they saw him. They went specifically to club shows to get insulted by Don Rickles. That's a whole nother order of, of magnitude when it comes to being able to make fun of yourself. I mean, these guys are celebrities. They have big egos, but they seem to say, well, it's my turn. I want to go hear what he's got to say. I, I found that just phenomenal. I did not know that there were that many celebrities who would go to his shows knowing that they were going to get picked on, but that's why they went. Yes, I, I think it. I think they. I think they wanted to show that, for the most part, they could laugh at themselves. And we we mentioned, you know, and again, it all goes back to Sinatra. If Don can make fun of Sinatra, he, he could laugh. Then he can make. If I'm Ernest Borgnine and he makes fun of my looks, or you know, is that your wife or a moose? You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I can laugh at myself too. And and it was it was part of being you know in in the in crowd and show business when when Don was um, playing the. Uh, the Slate Brothers Club, which which is big break in L.A. And, and you had, you know, everyday people, but also celebrities lining up around the block to get in in 1959. There are many examples of that in the book. Uh, huge stars just just to Don would cherry pick, you know, hey, I see, you know, Shirley MacLaine's here, blah, blah, blah. I see, you know, uh, Errol Flynn is here, you know, whoever it was. <laughs> I, I mentioned Borgnine was one of his favorites. He was like low hanging fruit for Don. But but they were they were friends, you know, and and at least the the these celebrities in in public would laugh, 
Um, not everybody was a huge fan. I know, I know Groucho Marx early on was not a fan of Don's humor. Um, mm-hmm. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were not fans. Lucy came around a little later and she had Don on one of her sitcoms in the 60s. Um, and she specifically requested him for her roast. Yes. It's amazing. These folks who got roasted, Sammy Davis Jr. and others, like when they're Dean Martin is putting together the lineup, right? They, they'd say, we need we need Rickles here. Like Rickles has to come to this. Yeah, Red Fox, too. I think he, he was the Red Fox roast. But so I think it was part of the celebrity world of seen and being seen and showing that they had, you know, celebrities, they're just like us, you know, we can laugh at ourselves. (laughs) You know, that not all of them were real, you know, they might've been laughing on the outside. They were probably dying on the inside, but (laughs) but they they, they wanted to be part of this hot act. And that carried over into, um, it, it wasn't that it was really when Don was doing his club work in LA and New York, um, I would say when when Don segued and and moved, and he became huge in Las Vegas, um, he spent like and it was twelve years as the main guy at the at the Sahara Hotel. Those audiences were there would occasionally be celebrities. But, you know, listen, you're in Vegas, somebody's going to stop by to see your show. It's just the way sure. it was. But for the most part, that was just everyday people, tourists, people who were gambling would come in and and just want to be insulted by Don, or better yet watching someone else get insulted <laughs> by Don. and the guys who were who were uh who the stage uh the guys who were staging these shows at these at these um venues like the sahara and the golden nugget and uh, all these uh this um uh the sands hotel they knew that they would they would sort of cherry pick people and put them in the you know within don's eyesight in the first they had like sort of a pre-arranged agreement you know mm-hmm. So if Don looked down into the third row or the second row, saw somebody, he could make fun of what they were wearing or their mm-hmm. looks or their ethnic ethnicity, their wife, their husband. You know, it was like it, that, that was his act. And and people expected that and they loved it. Probably more so if they weren't the ones getting picked on. But I think even the people, it was people always said it was like it was sort of like uh, a badge of honor to be picked on by Don Rickles. And listen, these people were coming from all over the country to see a show in Vegas. How great is it for the world's greatest stand, the insult comedian to, to single you out. And then Don had this great talent of he'd see, he'd single, let's say he'd single Robert out. He'd, he'd go on to other people in the audience. And then a half hour later, come back and remember your name and say, Hey, is that funny, Robert? You know, you're, you're <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And, and, he would, and he had this great memory of, of, of and, and it would make people feel like they were part of this experience. And I think that was, that was part of the magic of his act. And if you watch some of the American film Institute tributes, right. It, it's clear that Rickles was specifically invited to insult the person who's receiving this honor. There's a great clip of him making fun of Julia Roberts at the Shirley MacLaine uh, AFI celebration. Obviously, there's a, another one where he is just destroys Martin Scorsese as his AFI celebration. But Rickles is making fun of Clint Eastwood and Jack yeah. Nicholson and and everybody. So that generation wanted him to be a part of their celebrations, and I find that heartwarming for lack of a better term. Yes. And, and he knew most of them. I mean, he, he had, he had worked with Shirley MacLaine in Vegas. He worked with, he was, he co-starred with Clint Eastwood um, in Kelly's heroes in, in 1969, one of Eastwood's 
you know, first big movies. Um, of course, Scorsese, you know, Marty, stand on a phone book so we can see what you look like. You know, that all that <laughs> De Niro, right? <laughs> Stop mumbling and all, all that. And and he knew these people personally and and, and they liked him. And and that's what's important. I, I if, if you're not well liked, you're only going to get so far making fun of somebody. Um, and 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 I think they they knew they knew it was Don's act. It was it was part of the shtick. He was a nice guy off off, you know. He I mean he was a nice. People knew that off stage he was he was just like a sweetheart. And, and this this it was it was the act. That's it's what he did for a living. And I, it was, I, I was watching. Forgive me. I was watching a Rich Eisen show. And they had, um, I mean, darn it, his name, Kevin Pollock, who does oh, yeah, great, this, great, great impressionist, but yeah. actor. And they were talking about Casino. And, and Pollock said that De Niro, quote, worshipped Rickles. And Eisen's like, why? And, and Pollock's point was, De Niro said, when I was growing up, there were two groups. There were the Duat group, and there was the put-down group like among kids, right? That's who they hung with. Right. And, and De Niro goes, I was a put down guy. So to have someone like Don Rickles making fun of me, putting me down all the time, that just takes me back to my childhood. And I loved it. Like his joke at the Scorsese thing where he, where Rickles points to De Niro and go, there's Bob De Niro, one of our country's greatest actors. You ask him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and he would, uh, you know, there's a, it's mentioned in the book. There was a when, when Don was filming Kelly's Heroes with Clint Eastwood. They were if they filmed in Yugoslavia at, at that time. It was called Yugoslavia, and in a small village. And they made sort of a promotional, like a local news crew came out and made a sort of a promotional behind the scenes um, making of Kelly's Heroes. You know, featuring Don talking to the stars of the movie, and he was ripping on Eastwood for his wooden acting and mumbling and you can't understand a word he says. And, and Eastwood loved it. It was, it, it was great. That's on, you could, I think you can find that on YouTube also. It's very interesting to watch. One of the quote I remember reading decades ago, I think it was a story about Rickles actually was when Ronald Reagan won the presidency encounters Don Rickles and looks at because they knew each other, obviously. Rickles famously destroys Ronald Reagan when he got roasted on the Dean Martin roast. Just brutal. Anyway, uh, President Reagan looks at him and goes, come on, Don, insult me. And Rickles goes, I can't. You're the president of the United States. And I thought that was such a warm moment in its own way because Reagan's like, I'm president of the United States, but I can still take it. You know, I'm still Ronnie. Yeah. And Rickles was yeah. like, no, I don't think that I can anymore. <laughs> and then Sinatra puts him in that was it the 1985 inaugural. Yes. Sinatra insists that Rickles yep. goes there and, and no one can tell or know what he's going to say. And, and the Reagan folks just let him go. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I think you're right. His friendship, he knew uh, Ronald Reagan uh, from the, the, from the sixties and the, showbiz scene and they you know he'd see him they'd see each other in restaurants reagan was a fan so yeah i mean and and uh, interest it's an interesting point because there are times i think where don would not cross the line one of them was with he he crossed many lines with frank sinatra but there was one instance when sinatra is um sinatra was married to mia farrow for a couple for those couple years or whatever, weeks <laughs> yeah right <laughs> And somebody once asked uh, Don when he was 
you know, uh, making fun of Sinatra at the time when, you know, why didn't you mention me? He's like, Mia Farrow. And Don said, there were certain, you know, Frank's a friend of mine. There are certain lines. He basically said, there's certain lines I'm not going to cross. And, and he's going through a tough time in his personal life. That's not, you know, it's that's nothing to joke about. And I think also to his benefit, he knew that if he pissed Sinatra off, yeah, it would not be good. Well, but, let's but, talk- but he knew where to draw the line. Let's talk about that because one of the main things I wanted to make sure I got with you in our final few minutes here before we get to the five questions we ask all of our podcast guests is the line. The line started to move later in Don's career, clearly, and attitudes and what was acceptable started to change in terms of particularly ethnic humor or or making fun of women. Uh, How did Don... How did Don handle that and come back when he was toward the end of his life? He had some of the biggest popularity that he ever had. He survived that. You you wrote in your book that he was grandfathered in. And I thought that was the perfect way to say it. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really do believe that. I mean, we Don came of age and, and you know, I'm not saying anything nobody knows or of that era. It came of age when humor and what was considered fair game was it was it was different i'm not saying better or worse but it was different you could joke about ethnic groups more or women or you know his wife you know jangling the jewelry signaling the ships and all that kind of stuff that was one of don's favorite lines um but that yes that started to change i think to don's benefit maybe it's the wrong word but it started to change but he was already so late in his career at that point um, that it was, he was grandfathered into an extent. He didn't, there weren't, not everybody was thrilled. Um, and, and he did sort of later in his career, um, in his eighties and, and, and from then on cut back a little bit on that, on that sort of thing. Um, cause I think he knew the tenor of the times and he was smart enough to realize that, but he didn't cut it out completely. And you mentioned before the, um, American Film Institute tribute to Shirley MacLaine, which you mentioned before, Don, he was very funny. That was in 2012. Uh, Barack Obama was president and Don made an Obama joke. Something about, you know, I, I told, you know, Obama to come over, but he, you know, he forgot to bring his mop, you know, and he's here. He is in Hollywood, you know, the liberal crowd, the, the gasp goes up. Oh, my God. And then I, there's, in the book, somebody who was there said, you know, what? then within 30 seconds. Don had him back in the palm of his hand. He he made his joke, didn't go over as well as maybe he thought, but then, you know, but people were like, it's Don Rickles. You know, come on, what do you, of course he's going to say, you know, <laughs> if he's going to go there, he's going to go there. Did you, uh, have you ever seen, and I want to try to maybe end on this because I thought it was a sweet tribute in its own way. The clip on YouTube of the David Letterman show or the late show, whatever the hell it's called. Um, when Denzel Washington is the guest, have you seen this? I'm not sure I'm familiar with that one. So Denzel, I'll send it to you. Denzel Washington is the guest. He's scheduled to leave, but he stays on the set because Rickles is next. (laughs) And he gives Rickles this huge ovation and, and gives him a hug. And I think at one point, I mean, Rickles was mostly making fun of Letterman, right? Because he really enjoyed that. Yeah, but he looks over at Letterman one time and goes, "Why is this guy sitting here? Does he have to clean up?" 
pointing to Denzel Washington. And the crowd kind of doesn't laugh and it kind of laughs. And Denzel Washington dies laughing. Yeah. yeah. And so you just think that's a Gen X attitude. And yeah. I thought it was sweet for Denzel to pay tribute to Rickles, not knowing what he's going to say, knowing of what he has a history of saying. But Denzel, like giving off the vibe of we all got to laugh. And sometimes we got to laugh at ourselves. Yeah. And I, I, I think performers you mentioned denzel washington they, they knew don wasn't he wasn't racist he, you know it, yes given the tender of the times in the 60s and the 50s his jokes seen through that prism now would not play well i think some of them wouldn't um but that's just the way uh, it was in in those days i mean it sounds corny to say but you could you could joke about that sort of thing and people who knew don and knew him offstage uh knew that he was not a hateful man he made you know he made fun of his his get out of jail free card was he made fun of everybody every ethnic group including john don was jewish including jewish people <laughs> and nobody was off limits with him you know equal to what they say equal opportunity offender right <laughs> but but very sort of east coast in its own way yeah yeah that new york that very new yorky attitude um but i i do think that um, and people have asked me this before, and I, and I do think that had, had Don been coming up in 2023 as a young comic, no, he he would be canceled. I I, I just don't see how it could work. Um, and but I also see Don looking at someone like Dave Chappelle and going, "Oh my God, is he funny?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he he was a, he he loved comics too. I mean, it was it wasn't uh, it was never personal with Don, and 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 I think some. The people who knew Don knew that it didn't, and I and it's mentioned in the book. He not everybody was. That's not to say everybody loved Don Rickles was a fan of his, and he had a lot of detractors out there. A lot of people didn't think he was funny. And listen, I mean, people, it's it's you're an actor. Some people are going to think you're a good actor. You're not a good actor. Some people are going to like my book, The Merchant of Venom. Some people aren't going to like it. It's just that's the way it is. It <laughs> makes the world go around, right? You can't, you know, no accounting for taste. I guess. Plus, he was an influence on so many young comedians like Rodney Dangerfield was, you know, it's Howard Stern, Tim Allen, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, the list goes on. Tina Fey, the list goes on and on. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Mr. Starr, are you ready? I'm ready as I'll ever be. What was your first job? Uh, we talking. Like in high school, I, I worked at a fast food place in high school. Which one? It was a it was a fast food place called Buffalo Bob's in a mall in Paramus, New Jersey, which is where I grew up. <laughs> My family's from Camden, at least the uh, oh, okay. paternal side. What was your first concert? Electric Light Orchestra, 1977. 1976, maybe, at Madison Square Garden. And they were big. To say the you least. At that point, yeah. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh boy, I prefer biographies. So I mean, I'm reading a really good one right now. It's a biography of J. Edgar Hoover called G Man. Mm -hmm. um, I just thinking of it because I'm reading it now. It's it's very good. If you're a music fan, there was a biography of um, called Dear Boy: The Life and Times of Keith Moon, the drummer for the Who. Mm -hmm which is probably my all-time favorite rock and roll book. 
just and I just found out this literally this week. We're taping this the week of January twenty third. That Keith Moon and Mama Cass died in the same bed, four years apart. They did in Ringo Starr's apartment. He wasn't living there at the time, but um, yes, a very sinister, fabled history in, in it's London. Not like I guess it's not like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both dying on the fiftieth anniversary <laughs> well, of the Declaration yeah. of Independence, but in right. its rock and roll way, it kind of yes. is. Yes. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. I might. The being in this, being in the audience at the Ed Sullivan Theater in February of 1964, when the Beatles performed, it's just it's an indelible moment. And February 9th, I think, is when February they... 9th, 1964, um, and just seeing them. And then because now, obviously, it was we know how big they got after that. But um, that would have been interesting. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? Do they have to be living or dead? Do they have to be Li- living? living. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good it's question. An, it's, it was an attempt to make the question easier, actually. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I don't I, know that's worked out that way. No, I, I, off the top of my head, I, I don't know if there's anybody I really would, you know, need to talk to for, for two hours. Um, but, uh, Paul McCartney. I, yeah. But you know, you know, the thing about Paul McCartney is he's, he's been interviewed so many times now. Um, what's left to say, you know, I mean, I can't imagine, I would have liked to have sat down with Ringo Starr. I wrote a book about Ringo, biography of Ringo Starr. I would have loved to have talked to him. He wasn't having it. But um, just to just to hear about his more, not so much about the Beatles, but about his early life in Liverpool, because um, that fascinated me when I was writing the book. Um, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be the I'm gonna be the one person who says, you know what? And I'm I'm not gonna I can't think of a name off the top of my head. A lot of people have said, eh, most a lot of people just say their wives, they say their wives or husbands because they can't think of anyone. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to go there, too, but, I, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I see my I, I sit with my wife for two hours. It's, we're getting it's close. Okay. We're getting close to Valentine's Day, Mr. Star. That's so right. You sure? That's right. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast sponsored by Indiana based public relations enterprise, Veteran Strategies, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, our all of our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Michael Seth Starr, author of The Merchant of Venom. Don Rickles biography. It's a terrific book. You'll learn a lot about what is really a nostalgic, we said golden age, but beautiful period in American cultural and entertainment history. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Michael, I hope you come on again and we can talk about another one of your books, especially the one on Rodney, because he's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to do that. And thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.
This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.